please remain standing with me as we continue this text about our great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months when he was born, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they weren't afraid of the king's orders. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter when he was grown up. He chose to be mistreated with God's people instead of having the temporary pleasures of sin. He thought that the abuses he suffered for Christ were more valuable than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking forward to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt without being afraid of the king's anger. He kept on going as if he could see what is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood in order that the destroyer could not touch their firstborn children. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as if they were on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried it, they were drowned. By faith, Jericho's walls fell after the people marched around them for seven days. By faith, Rahab wasn't killed with the disobedient because she welcomed the spies in peace. What more can I say? I would run out of time if I told you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the other prophets through faith. They conquered kingdoms, brought about justice, realized promises, shut the mouths of lions, put out raging fires, escaped from the edge of the sword, found strength in weakness, were mighty in war, and routed armies the other way. Friends, the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may know that our friend Emily Hull McGee a beloved former minister here at Highland, has been on a pilgrimage in Spain this summer, traveling the Camino de Santiago during her summer sabbatical with her husband, Josh. I'm curious, I know I've heard of some of you, how many of you have taken the Camino, or at least part of it? Anybody? I know Ron Smith did it this summer. Um, I know I've heard quite a few of us taking this travel. Well, Emily has shared all about her journey on social media, and one of the photographs she shared that especially caught my attention was of a beautiful cathedral called La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, Spain. Now, Emily shared a bit about this church's story, which piqued my curiosity this week, and I began to take a deep dive to learn a bit more. Because the lead architect of this cathedral, Antony Gaudi, 
had the original vision for this incredible cathedral, even though he knew he would never see it completed in his lifetime. He was known for saying, it's okay, my client, God, is not in a hurry. Gaudi started working on the design for the cathedral in 1883, and construction began in 1891. From about 1914 onward, he gave up all of his other projects in order to focus exclusively on La Sagrada Familia. But when Gaudi died in 1926, over 40 years after he had begun this project, less than a quarter of the construction was finished. After his death, at least 23 different architects would become involved in the work of the cathedral. And the fascinating thing is that this had been his intention all along. In fact, he planned to involve new generations of artists and architects by providing samples and guidelines and ideas of his vision throughout his finished products. As Gaudi once said, great temples have never been the work of just one architect. And even today, in 2022, La Sagrada Familia is still not complete. Currently, construction is scheduled to wrap up in 2026, which is 100 years after Gaudi's death. This means that it will have taken 144 years for the Sagrada Familia to reach completion. That's around 10 times longer than the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza, and 123 years longer than the time needed to finish the Taj Mahal. So if we ever think projects take a long time here at Highland to complete, (laughs) we're really doing great, y'all. I absolutely love what Gaudi said about this long-term nature of his work. When he was asked if he would miss not being able to see this cathedral completed, he said, no, there is no reason to regret that I cannot finish the church. I will grow old, but others will come in after me. But what must always be conserved is the spirit of the work. Its life has to depend on the generations it is handed down to and with whom it lives and is incarnated. And so I thought of Gaudi this week passing down this spirit of faithfulness as I continued to reflect on this great cloud of witnesses that we read about in the book of Hebrews. Because these are the people from whom we have received the stories of our faith. These are the people who came before us here at Highland and have passed on this incarnational vision etched on the very stone walls of our church to be doers of the word and not hearers only. These are the people who were bold enough and brave enough to imagine a church like Highland, even when they could not see it whole. And that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is. It is the assurance of things we have hoped for, 
the conviction of things we just can't see right now. Today, as we continue our series on this cloud of witnesses, I would like to focus in on this idea that faith is the ability to see beyond what's right in front of us right now. Like Antony Gaudi, who envisioned this grand and beautiful cathedral that he would never see with his own eyes. By faith, we read in today's text, Moses left slavery behind in Egypt, not fearing Pharaoh's anger, and he persevered because he saw a God who is invisible. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation, Moses had his eye on the one no eye can see, and he kept right on going. Now notice that this text doesn't say anything about faith making our challenges become invisible. Faith doesn't turn a blind eye on difficulty or make it magically disappear, even though sometimes people like to sell us a cheap version of faith like that. For all the people during the height of the pandemic who just didn't see COVID or pretended like it didn't exist, it wasn't a big deal, or who believed that God would take care of them because of their faith, I don't think that's what real faith is. Because in the midst of difficulty, if we're being honest with ourselves and one another, and if we're paying attention in God's world, we cannot not see what's right in front of us. We can't not see pandemic or injustice or the cancer diagnosis or you fill in the blank. But I do think there is something about faith that empowers us to see beyond it. As Bible scholar Tom Long puts it, under the pressure of testing and suffering, the naked eye can only see the oppressor. We can see only the jackboot of tyranny or the scars of abuse or the x-rays with the spot on the lung. Faith sees all that too. It does not pretend that there is no Pharaoh, no evil, no disease. But faith also sees God. The God who promises to bring an end to all that harms and destroys. The God who provided a great high priest who in every respect has been tested as we are and who enables us to receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. You see, I think this faith that has been entrusted to us, it invites us to lean into not an either or, but a both and kind of disposition in God's world. The yes, I see Pharaohs of oppression and opposition all around us, and I see a God who seeks to bring liberation to all God's people. Yes, I still see the lasting effects of the pandemic And I believe that the pandemic will not get the final word. Yes, I see layer after layer of injustice and and equity within our world today. And I believe that God is ushering in a world here on earth as it is in heaven. I believe this cloud of witnesses has entrusted us, Highland, with a yes and kind of faith. This non-dualistic way of seeing God's world is what Richard Rohr calls seeing with the third eye. 
He points out that in the medieval period, there was a school of Christian thought that named three different ways of seeing the world, each building on the previous one. The first was seen through the eyes of the flesh, using sight and human thought. The second was to see the world through the eyes of reason, through logic and reflection. And the third was to see through the eyes of intuition, through contemplation, through moving beyond our dualistic ways of thinking. But Rohr says that somewhere along the way, we have lost this third eye view in the world. Today, which he says is the basis of much of the short-sightedness we have within the Western world especially. Lacking such wisdom, everything divides into dualistic oppositions and either-or types of thinking as vested interests pull against one another. Truth, he says, is no longer possible at this level of conversation. Even theology becomes more about a quest for power and rightness than a search for a mysterious and awesome God who cannot be named. Rohr says it's hardly an exaggeration to say that us and them seeing and the dualistic thinking that results is the foundation of almost all suffering and violence in the world today. We need all three sets of eyes to create healthy culture and a healthy religion. Without them, we only deepen and perpetuate our problems. Some call this movement conversion. Some call it enlightenment. Some transformation. Some call it holiness. It's Paul's third heaven we read about in 2 Corinthians where he heard things that must not and cannot be put into human language. Or to put all of this more simply, in the children's book, The Little Prince, the fox says to the little prince, it's really quite simple. One sees clearly only through the heart. Anything essential is invisible to the eyes. Call it faith, call it the heart, call it this third eye of contemplation. It goes by many different names. But whatever we call it, I believe that it's always there, always beckoning us to see beyond what's right in front of us. And so my question is, what is it inviting you to see? And what is it inviting us to see as Highland? to see beyond where we are right now. Do you know how church buildings became the types of structures that many of them are today? With kitchens and classrooms and all the different kinds of spaces we hold within these walls. I was at a conference with the Forum for Theological Exploration a few years ago and was fascinated when they began to share that churches first started building kitchens and fellowship halls because they dreamed of creating spaces to feed people who were hungry in their communities. And Sunday school classrooms emerged as a space to teach children in the neighborhood how to read. At one time... All of these spaces were creative innovations never before seen in church spaces. And somewhere along the way, people began to dream. 
to see something they hadn't seen before. And I believe that if we are going to carry on this faith that has been entrusted to us by this great cloud of witnesses, the church of today has to be willing to do the same. We have to be willing to dream. You know, it's interesting to me that Martin Luther King Jr. actually never intended to include his I have a dream remarks in the end of his speech in the March on Washington in 1963. He was up late the night before working on his speech, and he knew that this one had to be different. Although by now he was a national figure, relatively few people outside of the black community and the civil rights movement had heard him give a speech before. And with all of the main television networks offering live coverage of the event, this would be King's introduction to the nation. Well, after hearing a wide range of conflicting ideas the night before, he told them, I'm going up to my room to counsel with the Lord. And so King went to sleep at about 4 a.m. the morning of that speech, giving his final text to his aides to print. And they said, the words, I have a dream, and that whole section were not in it. King was actually 16th on the program that day. 16th. And even though all the speakers had been limited to just five minutes, they all went over. That and the fact that it was hot and humid and 87 degrees that day meant the crowd's mood began to shift as the program went on. And we have to keep in mind that there were not these large jumbotrons everywhere for people to see King. There were 250,000 people gathered on the mall in Washington that day, and most of them could only see a speck if they could see anything at all. King got up and started his speech slowly, and he stuck very closely to his prepared text. John Lewis was there as a student leader in the movement, and he said, I thought it was a good speech, but it was not nearly as powerful as the many I had heard him make. He hadn't locked into that power that he so often found. King was winding up his speech, and it just felt a little flat. And so Mahalia Jackson, who was seated behind him, calls out, tell him about your dream, Martin. But King just kept going on with his script. He wasn't going to budge until she shouted, tell him about the dream. And it was then that King grabbed the podium and set his notes aside. For all of his careful preparation, the part of the speech that went on into history books was added extemporaneously while he was standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that day. None of it was planned. You see, that's the thing about dreams, isn't it? They're not always carefully and meticulously planned and prepared step by step by step. They open us up to change and to new directions. Even like Antony Gaudi, who was known for driving people crazy because he held his plans for this grand cathedral so loosely. Every time he visited the cathedral, he was known to change things around a bit. And yet, by faith, King and Gaudi 
Moses at this great cloud of witnesses, even in the midst of change and uncertainty and unknown, were invited to see something bigger. To see beyond what was right in front of them, beyond the notes that were carefully prepared, beyond the architectural designs, to dream in league with God, as Abraham Heschel puts it. And I believe they invite us to do the same, to see beyond what's right in front of us, even when we cannot see it whole. I think... Paul Duke and Grady Nutt put it better than I could in the words of the hymn that we will sing in just a moment. They, also part of our great cloud of witness, pass these words down to our sister church at Crescent Hill, and we often enjoy singing them as part of our worship here at Highland too. Not our choice, the wind's direction, unforeseen, the calm or gale, Thy great ocean swells before us, and our ship seems small and frail. Fierce and gleaming is thy mystery, drawing us to shores unknown. Plunge us on with hope and courage, till thy harbor is our home. And so by faith, may we continue to dream Highland to see beyond what's right in front of us, to take that next brave step forward until God's harbor is our home. May it be so, church. Amen.